Take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 1, verses 14 through 17. John chapter 1, verses 14 through 17. As we pick back up in our study of the Gospel of John and cover some passages that we have covered before, but some that uh, we could probably spend the next uh, year and a half, two years just in these uh, few verses because of the richness and the depth that we will not be able to, 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 to discover, I don't think, in the amount of time that we will give to it a couple of weeks ago and then again uh, today. But it is an important passage because it's coming to the end of John's prologue. When we get to the, the next section that starts in verse 19, uh, we will then begin to see the unfolding of the life of Christ. Now, John has a purpose with everything that he does beyond this point. I, I, I hope you will notice that as we deal with it. John has laid out his case in the prologue. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and apart from him was not anything made that was made. And, and that's the premise by which this whole book is built on. He goes on to talk about him being the light of all men and, and men rejecting that light, and, and yet some didn't because those whom he gave the right became children of God on the basis of faith, those who believed in him. And, and so John, John gives this sort of overview of everything in these first 18 verses. And starting in verse 19 of chapter 1, for the rest of this book, he's going to be laying out illustrations. He's going to be building his case. He's going to be showing us examples of what that is. He's going to talk about what grace and truth is, and he's going to show us that through the actions of Christ and through the teaching of Christ and through everything else that, that dwells around the, the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you take these first 18 verses and you miss the, what he's saying, if you don't grasp the, the depths of what he's saying, then you'll misunderstand the whole rest of the book. Matter of fact, if you take out the prologue, verses... 1 through 18 of chapter 1, and, and just start in chapter, chapter 1, verse 19, you will get the idea, if you're not careful, that all that the life of Jesus is about is just a, a good man, a good teacher, who did miraculous things and who was, was really a, 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 a fascinating prophet who people looked at and liked the miracles he did and liked the things he said, and that was it. But the prologue builds the case or states the case that he builds through the miracles and the teachings that will culminate in Calvary, that will culminate in the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so John is very carefully and very meticulously wanting us to see the foundation of all that starting here in the prologue to his gospel. But today we're just going to look at verses 14 through 17. 18 would be included in that normally. We did the last, a few weeks ago when we looked at this passage, but I just want to stop at verse 17 today. Follow along as I read. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about Him and cried out, saying, This is He of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for He existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. And in verse 17, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized 
through Jesus Christ. That's the whole premise of what I want us to talk about today. The law was given through Moses, but through Jesus Christ, we realized, we saw, we understood grace and truth. Now, those are words we throw around easily. Uh, even as, as, as Pat prayed, I, I appreciate it so much. Lord, keep grace in our heart. Keep, the, keep that idea, keep that understanding, keep that concept ever near to us. Don't let us take it for granted. I mean, we use grace all the time. You ask somebody, ask you, where do you go to church? You go, I go to Grace Baptist Church. And, and that's a good name for a church. That name was not accidental. That name was not just a, sort of a, oh, well, grace sounds nice. It was purposeful because grace illustrates and grace states what our basic foundation is on. Well, our foundation is on the grace of God. It's not on our own works. It's not on our trying hard to be good. We'll talk about that in a minute. But it's on God's grace being granted to us in Christ Jesus. Grace is an important word. We will talk about sometimes that we are saved by the grace of God. And, and, or we'll say, by, but, but, but for the grace of God, there go I. When we're looking at somebody else who's, who's kind of fallen by the wayside. I mean, we, we use that word casually a lot, and yet we must never let it become a casual word. It is, a, it is what J.I. Packer would call a pregnant word. It's just filled with all sorts of truth waiting to burst forth. It, it, it's filled with, with something that, that we must understand and we must see or else we will find ourselves floundering in this whole thing called life because we'll get a whole misunderstanding of what Christianity is and who Christ is and everything else. So grace is important. We live in a culture that rebels against the concepts of grace and truth. Now, you, you may say, well, now, Bill, I know that we've talked about this before, that we live in a culture that rebels against truth. We live in a very relativistic society. We live in a very relativistic culture, a postmodern culture that says, oh, truth is relative, and, and what's true for you is maybe not true for me, and your truth and my truth and all these truths, and they're contradictory and everything else. And, and people just say, I don't, wanna, I, I don't believe in any kind of absolute truth. I don't believe there's anything that is absolutely true apart from everything else. I mean, our culture we know rebels against that. But I would contend to you this morning that our culture also rebels against grace. We are, especially in America, we're a wide probably true to some degree, but in America, all the more. I mean, let's, let's face it. What is the American concept or the American dream? I can do whatever I want to do. You know, we tell our children when they're young, you can grow up to be president of the United States. Why anybody would want to? I have no idea. But, but you, you can grow up to be anything you want to be. You can do anything you want to be. Now, I hate to break this to you, but if you told your kids that, you lied to them. Because, I, I mean, my parents told me that. And, and I've forgiven them for lying to me. But, but they, they, they said, you can be anything you want to be. I could not be a brain surgeon. I'm sorry. I don't have the grace God, given by God to be able to do that. I, I, there, there are certain things that I cannot do because I just don't lack the, I, I don't have, I do lack the ability to do them. I, I, I lack the, the, the uh, intellectual ability to do them. And so I, there's some things you just can't do. But we believe as Americans, it's the American way that I can do whatever I want to do. And we take that 
even down to religion. If I want to be religious, I can be religious. If I want to be saved, I can be saved. If I don't want to be saved, I don't have to be saved. I'll do what I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it, and with whom I want to do it. Our culture rebels against grace. Because, you see, grace says that, that, that God has done something in your life that you could not do for yourself. He has, he, has, he has touched your life in such a way that you have burst forth and been able to do something that in your own strength, in your own ability, in your own intellect, or whatever, you couldn't do. I try to think of something that maybe would illustrate grace a little bit today during the course of this past week. And I, I wondered, I thought about a time many years ago when I got stopped by a policeman. Well, actually, I've been stopped more recently than many years ago, but that's a whole other story. I probably couldn't use me very well because I always, when I got stopped, I always got a ticket. I always got the truth. I didn't get a lot of grace. You know, he'd stop me and he would tell me you were doing 70 miles an hour in a 55-mile-an-hour zone. That is the truth. And so I would pay the consequence. But, but now my wife, she hadn't been stopped as much as me, but she's been stopped before. And... To my recollection, the two or three times she's been stopped for little minor things, nothing like what I would get stopped for, but the policeman has always said, you were doing this, that, and the other, and I stopped you for that, but I'm just going to give you a warning this time. She always got a warning. I don't know why I never got a warning. She did. And, and, and we look at that and we can say, well, the, the officer told her the truth. You were doing this, but I'm going to give you grace and I'm, I'm not going to write you a ticket but really that's not grace that was some mercy perhaps you know I, I tell you the truth and now I'm going to give you a little mercy I'm not going to give you a ticket this time but don't do it again and I thought about what would it be grace if, if a police officer were to pull me over and show me mercy and say I'm not going to give you a ticket this time and and yet go a step further and give me grace. And I figured what they would have to do is they'd say, look, you were doing 70 miles an hour in a 50 mile an hour zone. That's the truth. I'm going to show you mercy and not give you a ticket this time. But I what else am I going to do? I've got this card here in my car that I'm going to write out for you. And it's going to be sort of a never get a ticket again card. And I'm going to give you this card. I don't think they do this, but it would be grace. If I'm going to give you this card. You put it in your pocket. And any time in the future, if you get stopped by any policeman anywhere, you just pull out your grace card and say, look, so-and-so state trooper gave me this card, and I don't ever have to pay a ticket. I don't ever have to get a ticket. This gets me off. That would be grace more than mercy. Now, John says here, that we need to understand that there's, there's the law that Moses gave us. You remember, he went up on Mount Sinai. He came down from Mount Sinai. He had the tablets in his hand, and we won't go into all the details about it, but on that tablet had ten words. And those words were very important words. They're still very important words. The law has not been, has not been negated. The law has not been done away with. Jesus said, I didn't come to, to do away with the law, but I came to fulfill the law. The law is not evil. The law is not bad. The law is a part of God's revelation. But, but the law it kind of is a, a negative sort of thing. You've noticed that. You shall not have any other gods before you. You shall not take the name of the Lord, your Lord God in vain. You shall not steal. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not kill. You shall. I mean, the law is, is pretty negative in, in giving us a lot of thou shalt nots. 
I would contend to you that many people in our country today and in our culture today, and sadly even many people in our churches today, uh, live far more like Judaism did in the Old Testament than they do like Christians should in, in New Testament and beyond times. I would contend to you that we make pretty good Pharisees. We look at what the law says and we say, well, look, I don't commit adultery, at least not physically. I don't steal, at least not so people know about it. I don't, I don't covet other people's things, at least I'll never tell you that I do. And, and we look at those laws and we say, I don't do any of those things externally. You can't see any of that in my life, so I must be a good Christian. You might be just a good Pharisee, if that's the case. Because there's a real difference in the gospel of according to to Christ and the gospel according to man in the 21st century. The gospel according to man has been sort of presented as being, well, if I'll just do better, if I'll just try harder, I can do this on my own. I don't, I mean, I want to talk about the grace of God, but it's really just sort of religious babble, you know. It's not really, it's not really what I totally depend upon and believe in and think I got to have. Grace is a nice word, but I'm doing it myself. That's law. That's legalism. That's Pharisaism. And Jesus comes along, John says, and whereas the law was given by Moses, the law was given through Moses, we have now realized through Jesus Christ grace and truth. And our culture rebels against both of those with an equal vehemence, with an equal hatred with an equal desire to say, I don't want his grace. I don't want him doing something for me I can't do for myself. I want to do it myself. And I don't want his truth. I don't want God telling me what is true and what is not true. I don't have to live by that. I want to live by my own truth. I want to, I want to have my own personal truth that I've sort of worked through and developed and, and drawn out. And, and that's, that's how I want to live. That's what our culture says. Two sociologists have kind of uh, come together, and, and a Christian sociologist and and given us a category that, that they called moral therapeutic deism, or for short, MTD. Moral therapeutic deism. And, and basically what they say is that most young people today living in the 21st century live their life in accordance with moral therapeutic deism rather than gospel truth. But I, I would tend to uh, contend to you this morning that it's not just, it's not just uh, limited to young people. I think it hits all ages and all spectrums and all social classes that we tend to be in our day living in light of moral, therapeutic deism. Moral, I want to be good. Therapeutic, if it makes me feel better, whatever makes me feel good. And deism, there is a God there, but, you know, we don't want to get too caught up in him. That's kind of what our culture believes in. These two sociologists gave five tenets of moral uh, the therapeutic deism and they said these are, the, these are the five tenets of it a God exists That's, you'd think a good start a God exists and he created and he orders the world and watches over human life on earth it's sort of a, 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 a he, he's standing back and he's watching over it he's, he's, he, he can get involved if he has to perhaps but for the most part he just doesn't he just lets it do its own thing Second thing, second tenet of MTD is God wants people to be good, nice, fair to each other. And they would say, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions, 
you can always hear this on TV when you hear somebody say, well, you know, all religions teach this. And, and so that makes all religions alike. They, they all teach that we ought to be good and ought to be nice and we ought to be fair to one another. And, and so moral theistic deism says God just wants people to be good and nice and fair to each other. The third tenet of MTD is, is the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. I mean, look at our educational system for the last 25 years. The, the emphasis, the stress has not been on learning, reading, writing, and arithmetic. It's not been on learning skills and learning, learning knowledge and gaining knowledge. The real, the real emphasis has been on, well, we just got to make them feel good about themselves. We've got to raise their self-esteem. If they don't have good self-esteem, they won't get along good in life. The goal is, is just be happy and feel good about oneself. And, and most people think that's right where God is. He wants you to be happy, and he wants you to feel good about yourself. Moral, theistic, deism. Fourth tenet is, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life, except when God is needed to solve a problem. That's the one time we really look for God to kind of step out of his heaven and, and step out of his just general oversight and reach down and do something, you know. I'm in a fix. I'm in trouble. I've gotten myself in trouble most of the time because I did something that is displeasing to him and disobedient to him and, and, and something that we would call, if we could call it this, in our day, sin. And, and it's got me in a real fix, and so now I need God's help. God, help me get out of this. That's the biggest prayer prayed by most people every day. God, I've got myself in a fix now. I need you to get me out of it. And then fifth tenet of moral theistic deism is that good people go to heaven when they die. What R.C. Sproul calls justification by death. We believe in justification by faith. But most American culture believes in justification by death. And, you know, all you got to do to be right with God is die. And so everybody dies, so everybody's right with God. So, so in other words, you, you have this, this moral theism, this, this moral de uh, therapeutic deism that just sort of permeates our, our society. I was reading a new book this week, and I, I love the way he put something similar to this he said in other words utilitarian narcissism reigns triumphant utilitarian being whatever works whatever whatever is is of value to me narcissism being absolute self-centeredness what i want my happiness my my feeling good about myself that reigns triumphant god exists but only to make us happy and nice which is the aim of all existence otherwise i'd really like for god just to mind his own business where our culture is because they're in rebellion against grace and they're in rebellion against truth you, you can see that all the time when you're talking to somebody and you tell them something you believe and and they will come back with something that's totally contrary to that and 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 they'll say well that's what i believe this and, and basically, they'll, they'll say to you in your face, well, that's how I believe the Bible. That's how I interpret the Bible. And who are you to say anything different? My truth, your truth. You want grace, I want my works. You want to be made right with God because of something Christ did on the cross, that's your business. I'm going to take my chance of being made right with God through my own work, through what I 
can do. Moralistic, therapeutic deism, which does not work. But our culture is in rebellion against that. Grace says, as I said, it's not just saying, here's what the law says, and I'm going to forgive you and not do something to you. God's saying, I'm not going to send you to hell. I'm not going to punish you for my, your sin. But he says, more than that, I'm going to take your sin that you owe a debt on. I'm going to put it on my son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. But I'm not even going to let it in there. That's just not giving you what you deserve. Now I'm going to give you what you do not deserve. I'm going to give you not only having your sins taken away and forgiven. I'm going to give you the righteousness of Christ that you have no part of, that you don't have. You have no righteousness of your own. That passage out of Isaiah that says we all have gone like sheep have gone astray. We've gone to our own, on our own direction. We've done our own thing. He says later all our, all our righteousness is like filthy rags. And yet God says by grace, by grace, I will take from you and I will not do to you what you deserve but more than that, I will give you what you do not deserve. Well, let that sink in a minute, folks. That's what grace is. And you ought to be able to dwell on that and think on that and meditate on that for the rest of your life and find, find worship in that and find, find joy in that, not just happiness, not just feeling good. It ought to make you feel good about God more than it makes you feel good about yourself. Because you're a wreck. I'm a wreck. Until the grace of God permeates our life. So God's grace is more than moral therapeutic deism. God's grace is working in your life to do for you that which you cannot do for yourself and giving you a life to live. And, and it's not just something that happens at salvation, folks. It's not just that I'm saved by grace at the cross and so now I'm saved because of the grace of God and I don't need any more grace. Grace is something that permeates our life every day. You know, I love, I love how Paul put it. And just listen to this. You don't have time to turn there. Jot it down, Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, having been justified by faith, that is declared not guilty, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And listen to verse 2 through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult or we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Paul says, listen, it, this grace is what we are now standing in. It's this grace that we are now living in. It's this grace that is now our source of life and, and it's all by His grace and for his glory grace is important but so is truth in Moses we got the law in Jesus we got grace and truth and truth is grounded in revelation John is going to spend the rest of this book showing us what truth is and he's going to show us that truth is something that is propositional uh, it's something that is a statement. It's something that you can say, I believe this truth. But he's also going to show us that it's even more than that, that this truth is a person. Jesus is going to tell us later in this book, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way, the truth, 
and the life. I am the truth. And, and, and truth is a, is a revelation, not just a, of a book, not just of the Bible, which is a part of the revelation of God's truth, but that truth is personified and demonstrated and lived out in Jesus Christ. And that's important to understand. Truth is based in revelation. Christian truth, which is all truth. Is, is rooted and grounded in revelation. It's not by reason, although it's reasonable. It's not by us figuring it out. We never would. But it's by God revealing to us what truth is in his word and by us, by grace, being able to say, Lord, I, I submit to that truth and, and Lord, by your grace, I want to obey that truth and Lord, by your grace, I want to live that truth and it involves the law, but it goes much further than the law. It goes to a whole new understanding of the law according to Jesus. There, there are three things I would say about the truth grace and we have truth three things about this truth that's grounded in revelation and that is this the content and, and truth has content truth truth is not an abstract concept the content of christian truth all truth can be put into propositions that is statements it can be put into creeds it can be put into catechisms it can be put into statements of faith in other words truth according to the scripture has substance it's not, it's not abstract. It has substance. And you can say, this is the truth. And you can outline it in creeds, confessions, catechisms, statements of faith, and it has been done that way. And, and we need to understand that because of that, truth is something we can say we believe. But that truth comes by revelation. That substance comes from the revelation of God's truth. Secondly, while it is words... And while it is uh, propositions or whatever and statements that we can make, secondly, the content is more than just words. It is words. It can be expressed in words. But this truth goes far beyond that. It's more than just words. It, it points, th this, Christian, this truth that's been revealed by God points to what is out there in reality. What's really there. It, it talks about life and, and, the, and the way we live it and how we live it. And, and, and this truth is, could be summed up in, in like what Paul uh, said in 1 Corinthians uh, 15, 14 and 15, when he simply talked about the, the resurrection and talked about the gospel. He said this, he said, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. Moreover, we're even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. Paul says, Here, there's the truth. It, it can be either true or it can be false. And he says to the Corinthians, if, if, if it's false, if we've preached that Christ is raised from the dead and that is false, then, then we've, we've preached in vain and your faith is in vain and you might as well go home and, and milk cows or something and, and not just, there's nothing to do here if it's false. But he says, it's not false, it's true. But you see, it can't be both. It, it can't be true and false. 
it can't be black and white. It can't be right and wrong. It's, if it's involved in truth, in God's revelation of truth, then it is either true or false, but it can't be both. We live in a day that rebels against truth and wants to say it can be both ways. It can be true for you and false for me. Are true for me and false for you. I mean, that's, that's the rebellion against truth. But content points to what's really out there. The truth is really out there, and it's either true or false. It cannot be both, and that needs to be remembered. And then thirdly and, and finally, the substance of the truth is not designed to feed my self-centeredness. The substance of the truth is not designed to feed my self-centeredness, or as D.A. Carson calls it, to feed utilitarian narcissism. You know, the, the substance of truth is just not to make me feel better or make me nice. The substance of truth is to change our lives by the grace of God and make us into something that takes faith seriously, that takes our Christianity seriously, that takes doing church seriously, that takes worship seriously, that, that brings us to a point before God that says, God, you are the true and the living God. You have revealed truth, and I am just in, in awe of that in everything I do. Several years ago, a Jewish writer named Neil Postman wrote a book. It remains one of my favorite books ever. It's not a Christian book. But the title of the book is Amusing Ourselves to Death. And it was an analysis of American culture. And he happened to have a section there on religion. And, and he titled the, sec, the chapter on religion, he titled it Shuffle On Off to Bethlehem. And, and one of his statements in there, when I first read it 20 years ago, pierced my heart and and it still pierces my heart today and, and postman said this about this uh, self-centeredness of religion he said i believe i am not mistaken in saying that christianity is a demanding and a serious religion when it is delivered as easy and amusing it is another kind of religion altogether Think about that. Postman, a Jew, not a believer, not a, not a Christian, said, I believe that Christianity is a serious and demanding religion, demanding a serious religion. But when it's delivered as easy, that is, hey, take it, take what you want, do it buffet style, you know, take a little bit of this and a little bit of that and, and leave that and I don't want this because this doesn't fit into my lifestyle. That's easy. You know, just have what you want. Take whatever you want and just call yourself a Christian. When it's either that or it is amusing, that is all for entertainment. Just to, to get a you know, kind of a thrill up our leg because we're in church. Just amusing, just, just entertaining. then it's something else altogether. It's not Christianity. Christianity is based on grace and truth. It's based on the work of Christ on Calvary's cross that has been applied to our life by the grace of God and by the Spirit of God. And it's based on the truth of God that we do not have the right or the, or the privilege of saying, I like some of it, I don't like parts of it. 
reading an editorial in the New York Times yesterday about uh, what's his name Jeremy Lin is that the basketball player is it Jeremy Jeremy Lin the Asian American who uh, didn't get recruited to a college out of high school went to Harvard played basketball didn't get uh, recruited uh, didn't get drafted by an NBA team so somehow he ended up on the Knicks farm teams and then he got brought up just to sit on the bench a few weeks ago and all of a sudden he had to go in the game he scored 38 points got 12 rebounds and 16 assists or something in one game and it's been that consistent for the last three or four games and I mean they're calling him the Tim Tebow of, of, of the NBA because he's a believer and 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 bold about his belief in it but this writer of New York Times editorial said you know I my view of Christianity is somewhat nuanced from what most people think of Christianity now I want to write him a letter and say what in the world does that mean I, I have kind of a nuance I, I believe I'm a Christian but but my Christian faith is kind of nuanced it's kind of you know, I, I basically what he's saying is I take what I want, leave what I don't want, and I'll just do it my own way. That is not Christianity, folks. That is not a faith based on grace and truth. That is a faith based on me. And, and my own self-centeredness and my own grandiose thoughts that I can do what I want to do, how I want to do it, and God will just have to say that's okay. John says, listen, Moses brought us the law. But we don't live in the law anymore. The law is still true. The law still shows us the moral character of God. And the law is not to be neglected or thrown away or done away with. But let me tell you something. There is no salvation in the law. There, there, there is no being made right with God through the law. It's not, well, if I can keep 5 out of 10 or 6 out of 10 or 9 out of 10, then the scales will tip in my way. It's by grace, through faith, in Jesus Christ alone. And my friend, that is the truth. As revealed by God. It's not my opinion. It's not my invention. It's not my thought. Nor can it be yours. It's based on grace. It's based on truth. And now John's going to show us that by illustration after illustration after illustration. One writer said, you know, this, these verses right here is the first wedding in the, in, the, in, the, in the book of John. He asked people what the first wedding is. Normally they'll say, well, the first wedding's at Cana, where Jesus did his first miracle, turned water into wine, over in a few chapters over. This writer, uh, this writer said, uh, Douglas Moo said, no, this is the first wedding because this is the wedding of grace and truth that brings about the substance of the Christian faith. John doesn't call it a wedding, but I kind of like that idea. Are you living by law? A legalist? 
I don't do this, this, and this, so I must be right with God because I know somebody does this, this, and this, and they must not be right with God. That is a false standard. It's legalism. The key is, are you in Christ? Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for grace and for truth. And we're grateful, Lord, that it is abounding in Christ. That he has brought us grace and he's brought us truth. And, and Lord, he's revealed it and expressed it and demonstrated it and proclaimed it. Father, may we also. May we also. Not just as a church, but as individual believers. Teach us how to make the glory of your name be our passion, my passion, in everything I do. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.